Section 25 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Caesar, Part 1. Many and diverse have been the views taken of Caesar and his career during the 1946 years that have elapsed since his death he did much to shape the future destinies of the world more perhaps than any other single man that has ever lived and even in the darkest times of the middle ages his story was not forgotten it may be said that when we have ascertained the way in which caesar was regarded in any particular century we know at once the general character of that century's outlook on history from the days of charlemagne down to the renaissance the holy roman empire was the great political ideal of christendom caesar as the founder of that empire was regarded as a semi-divine figure he lacked but christianity to make him the patron saint of europe certainly the nimbus would have sat upon his head with as good a grace as on that of constantine whose tardy baptism hid a multitude of sins and crimes from the eyes of the middle ages but pagan though he was caesar commanded the unquestioning respect of thirty generations of christians the best proof perhaps of the aspect that he presented to the men of medieval europe is that dante in his vision of the midmost hell where the worst of all sinners suffer the direst of all punishments saw three figures only in the mouth of the archfiend judas iscariot brutus and cassius the traitors who murdered their master in the senate house found only one fit companion the traitor who betrayed his master in the garden of gethsemane astounding as such a view appears to us we must recognize that it was entertained by the best minds of the middle ages dante was no ignorant chronicler but a much-read man a great political thinker who looked out on a broad field of historical knowledge before he drew his conclusions ere three centuries more had gone by brutus and caesar had changed places in popular estimation the scholars of the renaissance with their plato and their plutarch before them had reconstructed the old republican ideas of the elder world to them brutus was the last of the romans the martyr of freedom and caesar's murder was tyrannicide the righteous slaughter of the enemy of the state instead of being the revered founder of the sacred empire the dictator had become the splendid criminal who made an end of laws and liberty his greatness could not be impeached but he served as the type of reckless ambition which strides through battle and ruin to a bloody grave this was the caesar that shakespeare knew it needs but a glance through his tragedy to see that brutus is the hero caesar in spite of all his genius and his magnanimity is at bottom the man in love with power who cannot be happy till he has added the sceptre and the crown to the imperator's purple robe there is no hint that he desired to rule for others benefit to reform the world to reconstitute an empire that was falling into hopeless rottenness yet another four hundred years have gone by and now a third reading of caesar's career is presented to us we are told to recognize in him 
the great saviour of society the man who saw that the republic had gone too far on the way to decay to be capable of restoration and who resolved to save the citizens in spite of themselves even if it were necessary in the process to sweep away all the old constitutional landmarks and to introduce autocracy mommsen the most extreme advocate of this school goes so far as to praise in caesar the man who felt within his breast true kingly greatness and therefore rightly felt that he must make himself a king the doctrine seems dangerous of a thousand able and pushing young men who fancy themselves the chosen instruments of fate nine hundred and ninety-nine turn out to be the type of alcibiades or clodius or rienzi and only the thousandth is a caesar it does not seem wise to encourage the man of ability to regard laws and constitutions as trifles which he may sweep away in the justifiable endeavour to assert his personality and live his life every one must grant that the roman republic with its absurd and antiquated state machinery had gradually sunk into a hopeless slough from which it seemed impossible that it could ever be dragged out there was even less hope of salvation from the democratic party than from the optimates both factions their ideals and their programmes were hopelessly played out but in spite of all we refuse our moral sympathy to the affable versatile unscrupulous man of genius who made an end of the old order of things caesar had many aspects as the manager of mobs and the puller of political wires as the general as the legislator as the organizer of provinces colonies and municipalities as the litterateur and the man of fashion we know him well but caesar the altruist is a fiction of the nineteenth century to read into his many-sided activity the ideals of a benevolent prophet who wished to restore the golden age is absurd rather was he a brilliant opportunist dealing sanely and practically in turn with each problem that came before him enlightened ambition and the love of doing work well if it has to be done at all explain his career of real unselfishness or idealism there is not a trace if he ever denied himself anything that he desired it was because he saw that the result of indulgence would be dangerous to his political schemes his self-restraint was strong enough to enable him to refuse even the crown itself the dearest object of all his wishes when he saw that the move would be unpopular but it was policy and not conscience that kept him back on this and on many another occasion to represent caesar even in his later years as a kind of saint and benefactor who had lived down his earlier foibles is wholly untrue to the facts of his life the man is consistent all through his career the dictator of b c forty five was but the debauched young demagogue of b c seventy grown older riper and more wary those who represent him as a staid and divine figure replete with schemes for the benefit of humanity need to be reminded that at the age of fifty-four in the year of the victory of pharsalus he was ready to lapse into undignified amours with a clever and worthless little egyptian princess it is worse still that two years later aged fifty-six he could condescend to write and publish his anti-cato to pen a satire and a poor satire at that 
on an honest and worthy enemy whose ashes were hardly yet cold was worthy of a second-rate society journalist the monarch of the world was at bottom the same man as the clever young scamp whose epigrams and adulteries had scandalized rome thirty years back to understand caesar as a whole we must look not merely at the wonderful military and administrative achievements of the last fifteen years of his life but at the record of his chequered and turbulent political career from b c seventy to b c fifty eight when he was posing as the hereditary chief of the democratic party and winning his first start in political importance by his talent for self-advertisement and the management of mobs the julii were among the most ancient by their own showing they were far the most ancient of all the old patrician houses there had been consuls of their name in the first century of the republic and when it grew fashionable to construct an elaborate family tree going back to the days before romulus the julii connected themselves with aeneas asserting that Ulysses was an alias of ascanius the eldest son of the trojan hero they worshipped as their family patroness venus genetrix a circumstance which may either have been the cause or the result of their claim to be descended from aeneas and his divine mother remembering that virgil's aeneid was one of the remote consequences of the construction of this ambitious pedigree we must be grateful to the domestic mythographer of the julii the name caesar crops up for the first time in the third century before christ from b c two o eight onward there had been a long and not undistinguished succession of consuls and praetors in the house none of them won a reputation of the first class but many had been well-known figures in their day we may especially note gaius caesar the orator a contemporary of sulla and lucius caesar who gave his name to the famous law which enfranchised the italians in b c ninety the greatest of the house did not descend from either of these men but came from a younger branch his father was by no means a notable personage though he attained the praetorship of his grandfather nothing is known but his name the julii had for the most part adhered to the optimate faction as befitted a family of such ancient descent three of them had perished in the massacres of cinna but gaius the father of the dictator would seem not to have shared the family views we find him living quietly under the democratic regime of b c eighty seven to eighty four and his sister julia had been married to no less a person than marius himself a fact which may have gone far to determine her brother's politics the connection had at any rate a lasting influence on the career of caesar himself his fierce old uncle by marriage took an interest in the lad and caused him to be made flamen dialis in the year of the great massacre although having been born in b c one o two he was at that time only fifteen years of age the flamen's cap came to him from the brows of the virtuous cornelius merula one of the countless victims of marius's reign of terror it should surely have brought ill-luck to the boy but caesar till he came to the fatal ides of march was the child of fortune he escaped in the evil day when sulla came back from greece in b c eighty three to avenge the murdered optimates his youth saved him 
he was but nineteen and though he was the nephew of marius and had married the daughter of cinna sulla let him live this was all the more astounding because the lad had refused to divorce his wife a course which had been dictated to him as necessary to propitiate the conqueror indeed caesar had to go into hiding for some time till influential relatives begged him off but we may probably dismiss as a fiction the tale that sulla while he spared him muttered to his friends that in this loose boy there were the makings of many marii the story bears on its face every mark of having been forged long after when caesar had already grown to greatness if sulla had really supposed that the lad was dangerous he was far too conscientious a party man to have spared him all that caesar suffered at the hands of the reaction was the loss of his priesthood and that of his wife's large fortune for the property of cinna like that of the other democratic leaders was forfeited to the treasury we know little of caesar's life for the next few years he was still very young and politics in the early days of the sullen regime were dangerous indeed he would seem to have left rome in order to keep out of the dictator's notice we find him serving in b c eighty through seventy nine under minutius termus at the siege of mytilene where he gained distinction by saving the life of one of his comrades and was rewarded by a civic crown if suetonius ever greedy after scandals is to be believed he also won attention in asia in another and a less creditable way by his licentious private life when sulla died caesar returned to rome but it is noteworthy that he is not said to have taken any part in the agitation set on foot after the dictator's death by that heady and incapable lepidus the rising was fatal to all of the surviving democrats who were rash enough to entrust their fate to such an imbecile leader but caesar was not found among them we hear of him as taking his first steps in political life in the year after the fall of lepidus when he prosecuted the proconsul gnaeus dolabella one of the old sullen gang for maladministration in macedonia but the senatorial judges acquitted him as they also did gaius antonius herbrida another and a more disreputable member of the same ring when caesar impeached him in the following year this notorious ruffian was destined to survive and to take a prominent part thirteen years later first as the associate and then as the betrayer of catiline it was a good advertisement for a young man of decidedly democratic antecedents to be able to accuse such persons even if he could not get them convicted in b c seventy seven to seventy six the optimates were still so much in the ascendant that it was something even to dare to attack them after the trial of antonius his young accuser went off again to the east it is said that he had not been satisfied with his own speeches and that he was determined before resuming his political career to learn all the tricks of the orator's trade with this object he sailed for rhodes where he intended to study under the celebrated rhetorician apollonius molon who had also been one of the instructors of cicero but these years were the golden age of piracy in the levant and as caesar sailed by the island of pharmacusa off the ionian coast his galley was captured by a cilician corsair the whole tale of his captivity is told by plutarch and suetonius 
is too full of characteristic traits of the young man to be omitted the pirates who were business-like persons bent on ransom and not on massacre took stock of their prisoner and rated him at twenty talents about five thousand pounds of our money caesar professed to be deeply hurt at being valued at such a small sum and said that he was well worth fifty talents this was a kind of captive to whom the Cilicians were unaccustomed and they eagerly accepted him at his own valuation and let his companions and freedmen depart to miletus to raise the money caesar remained alone at their headquarters accompanied only by his physician and two valets he lived among the pirates for thirty-eight days says plutarch treating them as if they had been his bodyguard instead of his jailers he used to send out whenever he wished to take his siesta and order them to keep quiet fearless and secure he joined in their diversions and took his exercise among them he wrote poems and orations and rehearsed them to the gang and when they expressed too little admiration he called them blockheads and barbarians he would often tell them in a jesting manner that when he should be liberated he intended to come back and crucify them all a threat which they took as a piece of playful humour on the part of this affable young gentleman but he was speaking in perfect candour the moment that the fifty talents of ransom money had been paid he hired a few galleys at miletus and ran out to look for his late captors he found them still at pharmacusa celebrating their stroke of luck by a great carouse he surprised them captured the whole gang and recovered his money intact he then took them to pergamus to hand them over for execution to junius the governor of asia but learning that the worthy magistrate had an itching palm and would probably let off the Cilicians for a bribe he proceeded to put them to death on his own responsibility he crucified the whole of the late audience of his poems and orations after having first as a special favour cut their throats before he affixed them to the cross caesar then resumed his interrupted voyage to rhodes and studied rhetoric with apollonius for some months his stay in the island was brought to an end by the news that one of the generals of mithridates had invaded proconsular asia he sailed to the mainland raised some levies at his own expense and soon expelled from the province the raiding cavalry of the pontic king b c seventy four at this moment he received letters from italy informing him that he had been elected a pontifex in the place of his deceased uncle gaius aurelius cotta he returned at once to rome to take up this not unimportant religious office how such a comparatively unknown young man came to be elected to it and that too in his absence our authorities do not tell us from his return to rome b c seventy three down to the time of his praetorship in b c sixty two caesar was gradually working himself up from a position of comparative insignificance to that of the managing director of the democratic party how popularity with the urban multitude was achieved in the last days of the roman republic we know only too well the days were long past when the favour of the citizens could be won by fluent oratory and noble sentiments alone the would-be demagogue had not only to tickle the ear of the sovereign people with his harangues 
he had to be continually slipping bribes into its eager palm and filling its insatiable belly with doles and distributions of corn the age of tiberius gracchus was long past saturninus and sulpicius were the heroes and martyrs whom the democratic party regretted clodius was looming in the not far distant future dazzled by the magnificent career of caesar in his middle age many writers have striven to represent him as an enlightened statesman and a true lover of rome even of the world at large in his youth it is difficult to support any such theory from the facts of his early years of political activity it must be confessed that he appears as a demagogue of the usual type if he had died in b c sixty two he would be dimly remembered in history as a second glaucia whose wit was less vulgar than that of his model as the legitimate successor of sulpicius and the natural predecessor of clodius he fought with the common weapons and with the usual methods of other popular leaders of his day we perpetually hear of him as organizing and leading down to the forum or the campus martius gangs of armed rabble he broke up assemblies or overawed them with the stones and bludgeons of his satellites he swept the streets and fought on equal terms with the hired bands of the optimates he was the ally and assistant of gabinius and manilius in all their turbulent proceedings in sixty seven and b c sixty six it was his gangs which supported the stupid metellus nepos in b c sixty two and bruised and battered the bellicose cato worst of all he was more than suspected of having been deeply engaged in the catilinarian conspiracy at least in its earlier stages not one but many authors tell us that in the plot of b c sixty six caesar and catiline had joined their bands for the coup d'etat which was to make crassus dictator and caesar his master of the horse why the outbreak never took place is explained to us in half a dozen different versions one of which says that it was caesar not catiline who failed at the critical moment to give the signal for the rioting to commence whatever may have been the exact truth at the bottom of the many floating rumours which have survived it is certain that rightly or wrongly caesar was regarded as having been even more deeply implicated than crassus in the obscure plots of b c sixty six to sixty three we may guess that he ceased to be an active mover in them only when he discovered the full scope of catiline's designs and realized that he was too reckless and violent to make a safe coadjutor those modern writers who urge that it is improbable that the two men could ever have acted in concert use as their main arguments two very weak pleas the first is that caesar was too magnanimous and patriotic to have joined in a conspiracy which involved treason and massacre the second is that catiline was such a notorious criminal and ruffian that no sensible man with a career before him would have compromised himself by taking such a partner but the first argument is wanting in historical perspective caesar the demagogue of b c sixty six was a very different person from caesar the dictator of b c forty eight we must not argue back from his last stage to his first an ambitious young man with his way to make in the world may well have contemplated things which would not have commended themselves to the statesman who twenty years later had fought his way to supreme power the second argument that catiline was frankly impossible as a colleague 
falls to the ground before the fact that the respectable cicero was in b c sixty four only too eager to secure him as a friend and ally what cicero desired may well have commended itself to the more adventurous caesar evidence as to good or bad character is as useless in the one case as in the other caesar as a popular demagogue must have rubbed elbows with so many strange people between b c seventy three and sixty that we shall not easily believe that he drew the line above catiline's name indeed it would be useless to pretend that caesar paid any particular attention during his early years to the reputation of his associates or indeed to his own his way of life did not resemble that of the blameless tiberius gracchus or the priggish livius drusus he had rather borrowed his manners and morals from sulla he was anything rather than an austere fanatic or a model of all the virtues romans of the old school detested him for his absurd fastidiousness in dress the long fringes of his toga the breadth of his purple stripe and the peculiar loose style in which he girt himself displeased them they sneered at his exquisite care over his toilet his barber not only shaved him but finished him off with tongs and tweezers when an early baldness came upon him every art of the hairdresser was employed to hide the growing deformity cicero once observed that it had been long before he had taken seriously or dreaded as an enemy of the state the man who could spend so much time and thought over his personal appearance in his latter days it was remarked nothing pleased him so much of all the honours which were heaped upon him as the grant of the laurel crown which served to hide the disappearance of his once abundant locks but caesar was much more than an exquisite it is doubtful whether his recklessness in money affairs or his promiscuous amours were the more displeasing to those of his contemporaries who still loved the old roman virtues of all the rakes of rome he was by far the most notorious his admirers who plead that his life was perhaps lax according to our notions but within the bounds set up by the age in which he lived are grossly understating his reputation he was so to speak the inevitable correspondent in every fashionable divorce no household was sacred to him the elder curio called him in one of his orations omnia mulierum virum when we look at the list of the ladies whose names are linked with his in the pages of suetonius we can only wonder at the state of society in rome which permitted him to survive unscathed to middle age the marvel is that he did not end in some dark corner with a dagger between his ribs long before he attained the age of thirty the romans did not fight duels but they understood the use of the assassin for the writing of domestic scandals it is strange that none of the injured husbands named by our historians took advantage of the fact that bravos were to be hired on moderate terms in every quarter of the suburra but caesar lived on and his reputation seems to have been a source of peculiar pride to his satellites when he entered rome in triumph his veterans sang behind him a lewd song with the burden urbani servata uxores cavum moecum aducimus these are certainly odd beginnings for a saviour of society unfortunately the end was even as the commencement there were scandals in gaul and even cleopatra had a successor in the last years of the old dictator's life you know we the wife of bogut the moor it is grotesque to have to remember that in spite of his own career he was the author of the famous dictum that caesar's wife must be above suspicion 
if there was any other point of caesar's character even more strongly marked than his licentiousness it was his power of getting through money especially other people's money there was only one thing in which he was economical his eating and drinking for he was free from the very common roman vice of gluttony but in everything else his expenditures were reckless he did not like crassus merely spend money on politics with the definite aim of getting on in the world much of his waste was on mere personal luxury furniture plate gems jewellery pictures slaves of distinguished appearance or accomplishments he never could resist he once but this was in his later days gave a lady friend a pearl which he had bought for six million sesterces sixty thousand pounds of our money as an example of his recklessness we are told that long before he had got to the front in politics and while he was still overwhelmed with debts he built himself a villa at orisha at great cost when it was finished he found that there was something about its architecture that he did not like and had it pulled down to the very foundation stone End of section twenty five